This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the effects of climate change not only harm the planet, they also impact national security and challenge the readiness of the armed forces. We'll talk to the U.S. Navy's point person on climate change to discuss the country's naval strategy to mitigate those harms and plans to protect the environment. And during a tumultuous eight months, my guest became acting director of CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, leading through cyber and ransomware attacks and protecting the COVID vaccine supply chain. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden has called tackling the climate crisis a national security priority. The Department of the Navy has just issued their strategy called Climate Action 2030. Meredith Berger is the point person for implementation of that strategy. She's the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations and Environment. Meredith, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let's start with the impact of rising sea levels. Um, what have you seen so far as far as the impact on the Navy's operations and readiness? Absolutely, and I'll, I'll say Navy and Marine Corps because uh, we have the two services that are really impacted by the change that we see in climate. Sea level rise on our installations are impacting the way that we see um, the water, the salt water intrusion. We're building to higher plane levels. We're actually lifting things up because our installations, the place from where we project our power, it's where people train, fight, um, run all of our operations are starting to see these impacts. Our Marine Corps um, is charged with being the crisis response team for the entire nation. And so when partners call and we see those impacts, it's the Marines that go first. So in the aggregate, in terms of an operational impact, we're seeing an increase in the mission set that our forces are facing and also an increased threat and challenge to the way that they're able to meet that mission increase. Now, obviously the Navy and the Marine Corps don't have the uh, luxury of just moving inland. You've got to be on the coast. So how do you assess the risk and how do you address that? Yes, as, as you note, um, one, one of the, the key uh, themes to the way that we operate is being on and near the sea. And so we're assessing this impact in a variety of ways and meeting that challenge. So first we are doing installation assessments to make sure that we are understanding the way that climate is impacting our installations and as we move forward, making sure that we are building to meet those threats as we see them. So right now the Navy has completed all of their installation uh, climate assessments and resilience assessments. The Marine Corps is on track to do that by the end of the year. Do you have enough data and the right data to really make those assessments and know, for instance, at what point, at what uh, time in the future that this is actually going to become a problem? So we have some data that we're working with. We've been collecting metrics and we've got some work to do in terms of data. But what's important is that we're doing that work. So we're making sure that we are assessing, that we are baselining, and that we are going from that baseline to make sure that we're tracking along to see where those impacts are, where we're seeing them in the more, most forceful way, and making sure that we are building to planning to preparing for in every step of what we are doing in the department for this threat that is a threat and it's not going away. 
You know, one of the results of climate change is extreme weather events, both in the number, um, how often that they happen, and how extreme they are. So what are you doing as far as um, the impact to installations, and how are you getting ready for that? Certainly. Um, this is a place where energy resilience is coming into play, making sure that as we face these threats, we're better prepared to face these threats. And so um, being able to island, being able to uh, collect and store energy when infrastructure is knocked out, when we see that there is impact to our buildings, to create that resilience, to create that redundancy, means we have access to all of the things that we need that we can keep up with mission, that we can keep up with requirements even if our energy is out. So we're planning for that type of resilience. We're also planning for the future in terms of where we see those impacts as we recapitalize some of our public shipyards. We're actually building to higher floodplain levels because we realize that the 100-year floodplain level is not enough. We have to plan for more. So some of it is adaptation, some of it is mitigation, um, but this is also a place where we need to make sure that we are reducing our contribution. Um, you mentioned at the top that we had just released our climate strategy, and so one of the uh, primary drivers of what we're doing is we're building a climate-ready force. And we've got two drivers that are making sure that we do that. First, we are making sure that we are increasing our resilience. And secondly, we are reducing the threat. And so as we think about reducing the threat, it's decreasing those carbon emissions. I definitely want to ask you about that because, uh, you know, obviously the Navy's a big emitter. But going back to extreme weather events, that's going to increase humanitarian crises. Um, so much of the world's population lives along the coast. So mm -hmm. tell us briefly about um, the role of the Navy in disaster response around the world and how you're prepared for that. Absolutely. This is, this is a place where our Marine Corps, our crisis responders really come into play. So you see a lot of that mission set is that humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Um, as we see increases in storms and increases in impacts, um, this is a place where the mission set is going to increase and we need to be able to meet mission. Um, this is a place where partnership is really important, both in uh, showing that we are good partners because we are the responders and we're there to help, but also understanding how we work together to make sure that we are reducing the overall contribution. And so as we see um, some near-peer competitors are out there offering to help with climate resilience and out there um, offering to say that this is a place where we can really partner the United States is already there partnering. We are providing that type of relief. We are the crisis first responders um, in our Marine Corps. You know, the Secretary of the Navy has said that for the department, quote, bold climate action is a mission imperative. Meredith, tell me what's bold about this climate action plan. I'll start with the word action. Um, so as we, we set out our objectives and we make commitments to be able to not only do better for the Navy and the Marine Corps, but the entire Department of Defense, the nation, and our global partners. Um, it's bold is that it's action. And so not only have we set out our agenda, but we've also in parallel made sure that we are implementing what we are doing. So across the Department of the Navy, we have uh, touch points with everybody in the Secretariat. So whether it is research, acquisition, development, all the way to um, partnerships and making sure that we are engaging with the right people to, to make sure that we're working together to achieve these ends. It's, it's bold because it's comprehensive and it's action-oriented. Okay, quick pause here and then we'll come back and continue.
Coming next, my conversation continues with Meredith Berger, Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations and Environment. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. I'm back with Meredith Berger. She's the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Energy, Installations, and Environment. Meredith, I want to ask you about reducing the Navy's carbon footprint. What's the plan for alternative energy sources and renewables? So, of course, uh, we rely a lot on fuel at the Department of Navy to be able to operate some of these platforms. It is a clear dependency that we have, but right now we're working hand in hand with industry to make sure that we are finding solutions as they move forward in their research that are gonna meet um, what our requirements are. And so that's a place that we realize that we have a big contribution towards the carbon footprint, but also a lot of opportunity in terms of how to reduce it with the right partnership with industry. So that's a place that we are engaged. Uh, secondly, it's not just one part um, in terms of fuel, though it's a major part. Uh, next is making sure that we're managing comprehensively what our carbon footprint looks like. Um, we're fortunate to manage more than 5 million acres of land um, at the Department of, De of, excuse me, Department of Navy between Navy and Marine Corps. And so we have an opportunity to engage in carbon capture, um, blue carbon is another uh, place that we're working with nature to make sure that not only are we going after our dependencies, but also using our assets to make sure that we're comprehensively drawing down. So as you said, you know, this would apply both to land installations and also the Navy ships and aircraft. Are we moving towards hybrid um, or fully electric ships and aircraft? We're looking at uh, that opportunity. And so we're looking at electric vehicles in terms of fleet, both tactical and non-tactical, and we're pursuing that. There's an infrastructure need that um, needs to be met there as well, which we're also moving forward on. As far as ships, uh, we do have ships that already have um, increased efficiency in terms of propulsion. Um, and we have hybridization in terms of our engines as well. And so we're seeing maximized efficiency there. And just to make sure to connect it to why it's so important to war fighting as well, this means staying on station longer. This means less dependency in terms of logistics and having to refuel. And so it really takes everything that we're doing and ties it back to mission. But the reason that we're doing this is to be better warfighters. I, I was gonna ask you that, that this, this serves the Navy operationally. Correct. Especially when we're looking at, you know, maybe fighting in the Pacific, lots of long distances to be able to go farther and stay longer. Exactly. In a contested logistics environment, it's it's a it's a good vignette of how this all kind of comes together. And so as you think about going out and being able to stay on station longer, not have to rely on a resupply, at the same time, if you're using things like alternative fuels, you're reducing that carbon emission, you're reducing your greenhouse gases. And so in the aggregate, everything is working better together to make sure that we are meeting mission, that our warfighters are equipped to do what they need to do with less um, imposition and in an environment that's more supportive of their being able to engage. Well, let's talk about the Navy's impact on the environment, especially when it comes to marine mammals and sea life. What are you doing to lessen the Navy's impact on that? 
So in the Department of Navy, we look at it environment, um, environmental protection is mission readiness, and the two are really linked. And so- How is it linked? As we think about how to operate in the environment, if we are not treating the environment safely, then we are not training safely. And so in order to make sure that we are protecting our environment for the species that are there, for biodiversity, um, it also means training safely. If we have some sort of mishap involving some sort of marine life or anything else, um, not only have we impacted that environment, but we also can't train safely. And so as we are approaching everything, it's for the aggregate. We recognize that we're part of an ecosystem and to be responsible partners in that ecosystem, it means looking out for our interests, but also for the whole of interests. So Meredith, if you had unlimited funding uh, and you had to spend it on one particular project, what would it be? Oh, goodness. Unlimited funding. It I know. doesn't come up that often. <laughs> it doesn't. Not for the government. <laughs> no. Uh, if, if I could spend it on one thing, I would advance uh, technology so that we could have more effective alternative fuels. I think that is the place that we could make the most impact. And so if we uh, were able to find viable alternative uh, fuel sources that would meet our requirements and that would contribute to that reduction in our uh, greenhouse gas emissions and increase our ability to stay on station um, to operate more effectively for longer, then that's, that is the thing that I think would move us forward um, in that ecosystem of effectiveness that I was telling you about earlier. That's where I'd put my dollar. <laughs> Your unlimited funds. Well, how are you synchronizing with the rest of DOD for uh, climate action? We're working very well together. The Army just put out um, their climate strategy a little bit before ours. Um, we're looking forward to Air Force's release of their strategy, and the Department of Defense as a whole is really drawing together places that we can find efficiencies to effectively work together. So we are we are a good um, team there. It's, it's been really effective to come together and finding those places that we can really create um, balance and move things forward um, with, the, with the power of the Department of Defense as a whole um, is, has been really impactful. And we wish you luck. It's, it's definitely something important to do. Thank you so much. Thank you. Coming next on Government Matters, the push to protect government computer systems from foreign adversaries and safeguard critical vaccine components. We'll be right back. Just after the 2020 presidential elections, my guest suddenly found himself acting director of CISA and leading the country through some of the worst cyber and ransomware attacks on government and private networks. Brandon Wales is the executive director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and a finalist for a Service to America Award. Brandon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you were not expecting to be made director uh, right after the November 2020 elections. Tell us what happened. Well, when... Uh, Former director Chris Krebs was fired by the president. Uh, I was given the responsibility of becoming the acting director of the agency at an incredibly pivotal time. Uh, and I found myself having to both uh, ensure that the uh, agency held itself together in an incredibly challenging environment, 
at the same time be able to kind of carry on the critical mission that we were executing at the time, both supporting the ongoing security of the 2020 election, which was still ongoing with runoff races and um, that were still happening, uh, as well as at a critical time during the COVID pandemic when the vaccine was just starting to roll out uh, and our agency was providing critical support to the companies involved in the COVID vaccine supply chain, ensuring their cybersecurity against adversaries that we know were, were interested in targeting them. I, I do want to talk about that supply chain. Um, and, and you use the word a pivotal time. Current Director Jen Easterly said this, quote, it was a moment when the agency could have unraveled. What does that mean? What does that mean for CISA to unravel? I, I think that any time you have a loss of a leader, particularly Director Krebs, who had uh, pulled the agency together uh, after it was formed in 2018, uh, had really brought it to prominence through our work supporting the 2020 election and improving election security across the country, um, and the kind of rapid loss of Director Krebs and Deputy Director Matt Travis uh, could have had a real impact on morale for the organization. Uh, that being said, I think the organization really rose uh, rose to the occasion, uh, rallied around uh, the work that we were doing, and uh, I had a real honor of kind of leading the men and women of CISA during that time. Your regular job is executive director. Tell us what that role is and how that differs from the director. Sure. So I provide a lot of support to the director. My job is really to look um, at long-range strategy and policy development for the agency, identifying how we can better align our strengths, uh, where we are going with with our interagency partners to improve the overall cybersecurity of the of the nation and the inter and the global ecosystem, um, and look for kind of really strategic ways in which the agency could advance that mission. Whether it's on things like uh, recently passed cyber incident reporting legislation, uh, or uh, the work that um, we have been doing. Um, uh, to, to provide more support to state and local governments through a new grant program. So looking for real strategic opportunities for the agency. The first major crisis you dealt with as acting director was the solar winds attack. Remind us of, of what that was and, and the damage that it caused. Sure, so um, in early December, we discovered uh, that the Russian government cyber actors had actually penetrated uh, multiple U.S. government and private sector entities going back, in some cases, for over a year. Um, uh, they had done this through a very sophisticated supply chain attack, um, compromising a patch for a company called SolarWinds that was then deployed to numerous customers. And the Russian government used that to gain access to um, government networks, to private sector networks, to Office 365, uh, Microsoft Office 365, cloud environments, all to gain access to sensitive information, uh, unclassified but sensitive information throughout government and industry. Um, it was extremely broad, uh, the, the conduct of this attack, uh, and uh, it was a real test for the agency. We provided incident response support to multiple government agencies. We were working with the private sector. Uh, we were obviously working with our interagency partners like the FBI and the NSA to understand exactly what the adversary had done um, and ultimately to hold them accountable in, in early January when the new administration came in. Uh, so it was a real test for the agency. Um, it was pretty much all hands on deck supporting the, the number of folks that were actually compromised by this attack. Uh, but again, I think that the agency performs superbly, uh, being able to identify uh, the adversary, uh, evict them from multiple government networks uh, to make our networks more secure and safe today.
Talk about the COVID vaccine supply chain. How did you know that that was vulnerable and what did you do to protect it? Sorry, that work actually dates back to um, during most of 2020. We were um, had ramped up pretty quickly to provide support to the country uh, during the COVID pandemic. Uh, that included things like identifying uh, what critical infrastructure needed to be uh, maintained even in the face of lockdowns to help support states as they were looking at how to deal with um, uh, lockdown procedures and exceptions. Uh, and then quickly when Operation Warp Speed had stood up uh, to actually get the vaccine up and running, we provided uh, cybersecurity support to many of the companies involved in that Operation Warp Speed, both the actual vaccine makers, but also numbers of companies inside of their supply chain, whether they were making vials or they were involved in the cold storage uh, for, the, for the vaccine. Uh, I, when I took over as acting director, it was really at that pivotal moment. It was only a month before vaccines were actually starting to, to be given. Um, and I saw as absolutely essential that we, at that moment we not take our eye off the ball um, and that at that fragile moment uh, that adversaries would not be able to kind of exploit uh, the fragility of those of our supply chains to, to disrupt uh, the criticality of getting those vaccines into the to the American people. So um, we had done a lot of work preparing for that moment. Um, and again, I think uh, ultimately, despite our adversaries having a lot of interest uh, in a number of cases, uh, compromising vaccine makers. There were no disruptions to, to the vaccine supply chain. You've been tapped by uh, DHS Secretary Mayorkas to lead the Unified Coordination Group in response to Russia's war on Ukraine. What's that about? Sure. So dating back to late last year when we first got indications that Russia um, uh, would invade Ukraine, uh, might invade Ukraine, and the U.S. government was doing all it could to, to prevent that from happening, uh, we began working with uh, our private sector partners to help them be prepared uh, if, for example, Russia was to retaliate against the United States uh, in the event that we put in place strong um, uh, sanctions with our partners like that came to bear. Um, in uh, just on the eve of the of the actual invasion, uh, the president uh, asked the department to stand up a unified coordination group across the government to make sure that the government really uh, spoke with one voice, that it operated with unity of effort. Um, and Secretary Marcus asked me to take lead uh, for that effort to bring together our interagency partners to make sure that from a domestic preparedness and response perspective, we were ready. Um, and we spent a lot of time over the past five months uh, doing planning activities across the interagency to make sure that across cyber or physical incidents, we're ready. And so far, no attacks. So uh, <laughs> you're clearly doing a good job. Brandon, thank you, thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Mimi. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning 
we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.